welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance, a division of Panacea Healthcare Solutions. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help you manage every aspect of a compliance program. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, Principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background, having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, cybersecurity, as well as international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims. In addition to being extensively published and a sought-after presenter and quoted expert, Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas and is admitted to practice before all state courts, as well as the United States Supreme Court and the District Court of the District of Columbia and all four federal court districts in the state of Texas. She is a fellow of the Federal Bar Association, and currently she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee, a board member of the Federal Bar Association's Key Tom section and co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's on Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities Second Edition, as well as co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International HIPAA Considerations? She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25 and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. In 2019, she was also named to the National Trial Lawyer Association's Top 100, as well as First Healthcare Compliance's Top Presenter in 2019 and 2022. Ms. Rose is also an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. See www.rvrose.com for additional information. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box on your control panel during the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be, be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Rachel, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Catherine. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be collaborating with you and FIRST Healthcare Compliance. Thank you, you too. Thanks. So. Today, we're going to talk about an incredibly important topic that is also making headlines across a myriad of different publications and news outlets, and that's the False Claims Act. So specifically, I'm going to talk about False Claims Act hot areas, 
what counsel and compliance officers need to know. Today, I'm going to begin with headline highlights and then delve into a brief False Claims Act overview, hot areas of potential liability, specifically the anti-kickback statute and cybersecurity, then some compliance considerations and a conclusion. While no presentation is complete without a disclaimer, it is important to note that the information presented here today is not meant to constitute legal advice and also is current as of the date of the initial recording. This is a very dynamic area and participants are strongly recommended to consult both court websites as well as various government websites for the most recent updates. So moving into headline highlights, let's start at the top with the Supreme Court. Now, this particular case, the super value case, is really garnering a lot of media attention. It's scheduled for oral argument in front of the court on April 18th of 2023, and basically it's on appeal from the Seventh Circuit. Now, the key issues are whether and when a defendant's contemporaneous subjective understanding or beliefs about the lawfulness of its conduct are relevant to whether it, quote, knowingly violated the False Claims Act. So knowingly goes to the scienter element, and under the False Claims Act, there are basically three types of scienter or knowledge. One is knowing and willful. The second one is what I call ostrich syndrome. It's deliberate disregard. And lastly, we have recklessness. So if you're on the plaintiff or the government side, the only threshold you have to clear is reckless. You're not required to meet the two higher prongs. If you have evidence that meets that requirement or you can meet those standards of Center, that is ideal, but recklessness is all you need to clear. And defense counsel oftentimes will argue something different, whether or not it's uh, well-founded and, it just depends on the facts and circumstances and who defense counsel is under those situations. Now, this case is unique for a few reasons. First and foremost, it has had a number of amicus briefs from a wide range of participants in the industry and in not only limited to healthcare, but it extends beyond healthcare to the US Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, the National Association of Manufacturers and Pharmaceuticals. On the relator side, there's Taxpayers Against Fraud. There's the American Hospital Association. There is just a laundry list of entities that are filing amicus briefs and basically 20 industry groups have urged the Supreme Court on Tuesday to back what's known in this case is an objectively reasonable standard for determining when a defendant has acted knowingly under the False Claims Act, saying companies shouldn't risk punishment for trying to interpret unclear policies. Now, when one reads the defense's briefs and even a lot of the amicus briefs, 
there is agreement both amongst the relator, the government, and the defendants that if there is clear law, rules, regulations, or guidance, and the Medicare manual is a great example of guidance, then this would not even come close to applying. And whatever the rule says, you can go to congressional intent, you can look at the congressional hearings, there's a lot that you can bring in whenever there is a specific type of conduct that is expressed. Now, where it gets murky, and this is why it's in front of the Supreme Court, is that the side of the aisle, Government Relators Council is one side of the aisle, and Defense Council is another side of the aisle, really do have differing vantage points on this. So the petitioner's position that a party can violate the False Claims Act, even when it acts consistent with an objectively reasonable interpretation of an ambiguous provision would impermissibly broaden the act's intended scope and threaten in the terrorum effect of quasi-criminal liability in cases involving the complex statutory and regulatory regimes that amicus members must navigate every day. And this was included in the Illinois State Medical Society, National Association of Manufacturers and Pharmaceutical Research, and the Manufacturers of America. While whistleblowers and the government had argued that the Seventh Circuit's decisions wrongly ignored the role of subjective intent in determining scienter. Again, that knowing part, knowing or the willful or reckless, that's called scienter. Upholding those circuit court decisions would allow FCA defendants to wrongly escape liability through the after the fact explanations for their actions cooked up by, quote, crafty lawyers, the whistleblowers and the government had argued with amicus support from whistleblower and watchdog groups and more than 30 state attorney generals. So there are arguments on both sides of the aisle. And basically, the Seventh Circuit had initially found in a pair of split two-to-one decisions that the retailers had not acted with the necessary scienter when they failed to offer all discounts available to retail customers for generic drugs in the usual and customary or UNC prices charged to beneficiaries of the government's programs. So what's interesting here is that whenever one reads a statute, for example, the anti-kickback statute and the Stark law for the physician self-referral law as we know it to be as well, Basically, you have to read laws that are closely related in pari materia, which is the Latin term for just that. Things that are close in proximity or have the same scope of conduct associated with them have to be read in conjunction with each other. So if we were to impart in pari materia into some of the arguments that are set forth by defense counsel, likely a different result would occur. So this is absolutely a case to keep on one's radar, both as inside counsel and external counsel. And basically the two cases that the court granted cert on 
which are combined here, are United States ex-relator Thomas Proctor versus Safeway Inc. And that's case number 22-111. And then we have United States ex-relator Tracy Shutt, S-C-H-U-T-T-E et al. versus Super Value Inc. et al. Case number 21-1326. And those are both in front of the Supreme Court. So again, you're getting into very technical procedural sides of the equation and how those relate to meeting the Sienter requirements. Just as an aside, Sienter under the anti-kickback statute is defined differently than the False Claims Act. So that's another area to stay abreast of too, because there was recently a Sixth Circuit case which sided with the Eighth Circuit that we'll get into in a little bit. So Polanski, cert was granted in June of 2022 and oral argument occurred on December 6th of 2022. And here the issue was whether the government has authority to dismiss a False Claims Act suit after initially declining to proceed with the action and what standard applies if the government has that authority. Secondly, the government may also seek dismissal of the action under 3730C2A. This is also related to what's known as the Granston Memo, and Mr. Granston is a very high-ranking official in the Department of Justice, and a couple of years ago, he was asked to write and promulgate the what is now known as the Granston Memo. And there are certain factors within the Granston Memo which define reasons where the government may seek dismissal. And what's important here is that dismissal is rarely used by the United States government because oftentimes the government will either elect to intervene in a case or they decline the case and let relators counsel move forward. And I practice in this area of the law, typically on the relator side, and I've with my co-counsel moved forward with a decline case and was very successful. And we have a couple more of those cases in play right now. I've also had positive outcomes where the government has intervened in cases as well. So it is important to note that the government only intervenes in about 20% of all False Claims Act cases that are filed. And that's significant because the government may say we don't have resources. Well, what are resources? You're the government, you can print money. That's a non-starter. However, if you're looking at the number of cases, especially in light of the PPP fraud and the COVID-19 related fraud, they, a lot, they, the U.S. Attorney's offices and the DOJ were inundated with a lot of different cases, which would not have been available, but for the COVID-19 pandemic and some of the effects of that. So resources, you need people to bring about a case. So typically when you have good counsel and it's a case that will clear the hurdles, the government will decline the case and say, you have our blessing, you can move forward. It's important that Relators Council have a good relationship with the United States government because they can be your friend and your ally throughout the process. 
For defense counsel, I've seen this raised more and more, but in speaking with my prudent defense counsel colleagues and friends, they don't pull this out all the time. Just because the government is declining a case, not every case can be dismissed. So as defense counsel, I would recommend uh, picking your battles because if you're one who cries wolf all the time, the government's uh, not going to heed your warnings. So there are also very legitimate instances where national security may be involved or there could be other material issues. In the statute itself, however, the government may not just unilaterally dismiss a case. The Relators Council does have the ability to file a motion for a hearing. If the motion's not filed, then that's a procedural misstep and things can go south pretty quick. So you need to make sure that you're appreciating what the procedural steps are within the False Claims Act. So you can file for a hearing on the motion against the government seeking dismissal. And then you have the opportunity to argue why the government should not be granted dismissal in this case. And a couple of my colleagues have done this successfully. It doesn't happen all the time, but it is something to be aware of. Owsley cert was denied in this case in the fall of 2022. And basically here it, it related to the false claims for payment with sufficient particularity. So anytime you file a case that relates to fraud, which the False Claims Act does, anyone who practices in federal court appreciates that you have to meet the who, what, when, where, why, and how under Rule 9B. Having said that, it does not require in most circuits that particular claims be pled. The Fifth Circuit's one of those where you do not need specific claims, where the scheme is adequate, coupled with the uh, Grieber case. Um, so you have Grieber, you have Grubbs in the Third Circuit, you have Davis in the Fifth Circuit. So you have all of these different factors and the fifth and the third circuit are pretty consistent in terms of what you need to plead to satisfy a 9B standard. The sixth circuit and the 11th circuit are more stringent. And so that's something that is often argued uh, by other counsel, even if you're in one of the quote, more favorable circuits. But basically it comes down to what's required in Iqbal and Twombly, which are in fact the Supreme Court cases which really define what's required of 9B. So that's what I would uh, direct people to. But again, depending on the circuit that you're in, the case law could vary. But even the Sixth Circuit did hone in on the scheme itself. And some of the amicus briefs that the DOJ have filed with the Supreme Court going back to about 2013, the Tadeka pharmaceutical case, they said not every whistleblower or relator is in the billing department has access to specific claims. That does not mean that they are not in a position to identify and root out fraud and bring it to the government's attention. So that's the balance that a lot of courts seem to hone in on, and that's what the government has supported as well. This came 
is a great case because it is an example of a case where the government actually declined and the Relators Council and their clients moved forward with the government support and ended up after seven years with the defendants agreeing to pay $900 million to settle allegations related to improper physician payment. So this is a classic anti-kickback statute case and one that I would recommend that people read. It's out of the district court in Massachusetts. And the underlying fraud basically related to Biogen offering and paying remuneration, including in the form of speaker honoraria, speaker training fees, consulting fees and meals to healthcare professionals who spoke at or attended Biogen speaker programs, speaker training meetings, or consultant programs to induce them to prescribe the drugs Enovex, Ty Sabri and Tech Fidera in violation of the anti-kickback statute. Now, as someone who has sold pharmaceuticals and was a top representative in my prior life before both of my uh, advanced degrees and my certificate in negotiation from Harvard Law School, I will say that the more complex the drug name is, A, the more likely for error, B, the harder it is for the patient and the provider to remember. Largest settlement in a non-intervened case in the history of the False Claims Act. Artificial intelligence is another area to look out for. And basically in October of 2022, the Food and Drug Administration updated its AI ML medical device list. And just prior to that, it published its final guidance cl clinical decision support software. Now, what's important here is that the FDA's oversight of clinical decision support CDS software intended for healthcare professionals with the purpose of describing FDA's regulatory approach to CDS software functions. This guidance clarifies the types of CDS functions that do not meet the definition of a device as amended by the 21st Century Cures Act. The 21st Century Cures Act was signed into law in 2016. It does not establish any rights for any person and is not binding on either the Food and Drug Administration or the public. Anytime you have guidance, that's not the same as a rule or a regulation. However, since the brand memo was repealed, it's very important to note that guidance can play a significant role, especially, for example, the Medicare manual or other healthcare types of documents and guidance that HHS or the FDA or CMS issues in terms of interpretation, because the agency's saying, this is what it means. So going back to that super value case, that's where if a defense counsel says, we had no idea, and yet there's guidance, the court and the government can say, how can you say you didn't know? Just because you perhaps didn't read it, doesn't mean it wasn't there. So that's where guidance would come in under what's being argued in front of SHUT as well as in pari materia. You can use an alternate or alternative approach if it satisfies the requirements of the applicable statutes and regulations. So are there implications for artificial intelligence and 
the False Claims Act? Absolutely. And a good case is out of the Southern District of New York, and it's 122-CV-05187. And that is actually considerable because SDNY is one of the preeminent U.S. attorney's offices in the country. Secondly, this involved AI software as it related to HUD and Meta, in fact, targeting certain groups in order to let them know about housing and, in essence, violated equal protection by doing it. So the cybersecurity initiative, initiative continues to be on the government's radar, not only with the DOJ, although this is a specific initiative to the DOJ, but also across all government agencies. And that's because the White House has really put a focus on that in light of a lot of state actors such as Hive, and other threats to our country's infrastructure, which really came to the forefront with the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. So I was fortunate along with my co-counsel to represent the whistleblower, Sean Lawler, in the first case that settled under the Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative, and the government did intervene in that case. Now, what about the False Claims Act itself? So basically the False Claims Act can take on a lot of different forms. Uh, the most common form being what's known as a factually false claim. And that's when no goods or services are rendered yet a bill is submitted for payment, boom. You then get into legally false claims and there are two categories. You have express legally false claims and then you have implied. For anyone who's ever read the CMS form 855, which is what providers need to fill out before they enroll as a Medicare participating provider, there is a part of the attestation that basically says, I will abide by all material laws, including but not limited to the anti-kickback statute and the physician self-referral law, AKA Stark law and they go on and on and on. And there's also a provision at the bottom that acknowledges the False Claims Act and potential civil or criminal liability. So that is an express false claim. That similar disclaimer is seen whenever any claim is submitted, whether it is in paper form or electronically. The paper forms are CMS Form 1500, which is typically what we see in Part B settings, while our hospitals use CMS form UB04. Now, the last type of claim is what's known as a reverse false claim, and that is also inherent in the False Claims Act. It also relates to what's known as the 60-day rule under the Affordable Care Act. So implied false claims are that of the Escobar case, which the Supreme Court opined on in the summer of 2016. And basically that's when there's a provision or a type of conduct which is not in that attestation, but is still material to the government's willingness to pay. And unfortunately in the Escobar case, there was a minor patient who was treated by individuals who did not have the 
appropriate licensure. And as a result, she ended up dying because of the treatment and the drugs that were prescribed. So I don't think very many people would say, oh, it's okay for an x-ray tech to be reading x-rays and signing a doctor's name and submitting those and getting paid as a doctor. It's just, it's not going to happen. And that's basically what happened in that case. So trouble damages are available. The elements that need to be proven as we went through before with the knowing submission or cause to be submitted a false claim for payment to a federal government or a state government for Medicaid purposes or knowingly withhold funds to which the government is entitled. That's the reverse false claim. The claim was materially false or fraudulent and the defendant knew or acted in deliberate ignorance or reckless indifference of the falsity. As of January 30th, 2023, the per penalty claim is between 13508 and $27,018. So there was a significant jump and typically it's tied to the consumer price index and the civil monetary penalties here we're seeing absolutely increase. So this is an area that I'll just sidestep for a minute. Depending on the years of conduct occurred, the penalty range is going to be different. So you need to make sure you have a handy dandy chart, whether you are on the defense side or on the relator side when you're looking at what your potential damages are based on that. Relators are entitled to 15 to 30% of the government's recovery. Typically it's 15 to 25 when the government intervenes, 25 to 30 if the DOJ declines. For suspect conduct, however, the relator percentages may go below 15 and suspect conduct has different connotations, but for now I'll just leave it at that. Recent FCA data, this was announced by the DOJ in February of 2023. 2.2 billion in total False Claims Act settlements and judgments for their fiscal year 2022. Most of the fiscal year recoveries came from the healthcare industry and 1.7 billion of that is accredited to that 2.2. The government and whistleblowers were party to 351 settlements and judgments. That is the second highest number of settlements and judgments in a single year. Recoveries since the 1986 amendments to the False Claims Act now total more than 72 billion. And the DOJ also highlighted that it continues to hold individuals not just corporations accountable for violations. This is not new. It was really emphasized about a decade ago in the Yates memo, which Sally Yates promulgated when she was at the DOJ. So again, holding individuals and corporations accountable, both civilly and criminally, is not new. Coordination between government agencies, as well as between the civil and criminal divisions also is not a novel concept. So what about the anti-kickback statute? Well, it was signed into law in 1972 by President Nixon and it is still going strong. So overall, I'm gonna show you a chart on the next slide that shows the main differences, but the Stark Law came a while after the anti-kickback statute. In fact, it was originally enacted in 1989, so we're looking at 17 years difference there. 
And basically, the Stark Law is a strict liability law. We have different expansions which occurred over the years. And in 1993, it's particularly germane because this is when the definition of designated health services emerge, and that is a term that is specific to the Stark Law. So the amendments then became effective in January of 1995. CMS promulgated regulations for Stark 1 and Stark 2 in three phases. Phases 1, 2, and 3 were intended to be read together after each phase was enacted. General exceptions to start before the new final rule, you have physician services, in-office ancillary services, prepaid plans, intra-family rural referrals, and academic medical centers. But even though there are exceptions, they're very specific and very nuanced as well. And many states not only have similar Stark and or AKS laws that prohibit kickbacks and or restrict physician self-referrals, one also has to read the AKS and Stark law and materia with each other. And now with the Elimination of Kickbacks and Recovery Act, which applies to three entities only and has safe harbors, you need to read that law in conjunction with the AKS and Stark law. When you're dealing with a treatment home, you're dealing with a laboratory, or you're dealing with a transitional home for substance use disorder treatment. Labs, that goes broad. It doesn't matter if it's for substance use disorder treatment or not, but this is very specific. And one of the biggest differences between the AKS and ECRA is in fact the employment side of the equation. So that's something just to be conscious of there as well. Now, what about the AKS and the Stark Law? Well, prohibition under the AKS is, in fact, very broad. It is anything that constitutes offering, paying, soliciting, receiving, anything of value in cash or in kind in order to induce reward or reward referrals. And that's critical whenever you're arguing these days as well. And then what we have is a um, Stark Law. And basically, that's more specific. It prohibits a physician from referring Medicare or Medicaid patients for designated health services to an entity with which the physician or an immediate family member, and the term immediate family member is defined in the statute, has a financial relationship unless an exception applies. It prohibits the designated health services entity from submitting claims to Medicare for those services resulting from a prohibited referral. So here the referrals under AKS can be from anyone. Under Stark Law, it's from a physician. An interesting question under Stark, though, is if a advanced practitioner, such as a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, is engaged in the conduct, because in most states they fall under the purview of a physician's license, how does that pay out? So another uh, question that... 
uh, arises is what's included. And the items or services under AKS or any items or services and designated health services, which again are defined in the law itself are what are included under Stark Law. So what about intent? Intent must be proven and it's knowing and willful. And Stark Law is a strict liability. There's no intent standard for overpayment. Intent is required for civil monetary penalties for knowing violations. The penalties under the AKS can be criminal and or civil. Stark is a civil statute only. So what about exceptions? We have voluntary safe harbors and mandatory exceptions under Stark and what federal healthcare programs, AKS covers them all, and Stark is limited to Medicare and Medicaid. So this is very important because if you go to the HHS OIG website and look under fraud, waste, and abuse, there are some critical uh, items to consider. Uh, first, it's that there are five laws that really are of interest to the government. And three of those are the False Claims Act, the Stark Law, and the Anti-Kickback Statute. So right there, that should say a lot. And you need to really cultivate a culture of compliance around that. That will help you, especially from the defense side, when you get into mitigation and credit. So an, a case worth watching, and this is what I mentioned, this actually just uh, came down the opinion did on March 28th. So basically some interesting items here are the um, Third Circuit and the Eighth Circuit had already reached different conclusions about how resulting from should be interpreted. In Greenfield versus Medco Health Solutions, the Third Circuit said that there must be some connection between a kickback and a subsequent reimbursement claim, but it balked at requiring proof that the claim wouldn't exist without the kickback. Well, unfortunately, the Sixth Circuit chose to follow the Eighth Circuit, and it's kind of painful. It says that the False Claims Act plaintiffs must prove that a defendant would not have included particular items or services, but for illegal kickbacks. Now, what's important here is that honing in on the language of the Affordable Care Act with basically, if you prove an anti-kickback violation, it, you automatically get the False Claims Act violation. So on Tuesday, basically what the Sixth Circuit said was that the ordinary meaning of, quote, resulting from is but for causation. And for those of you who are non-lawyers, if you go to common law with negligence, you have basically four elements that need to be met. You have duty, breach, causation, and there are two types of causation. There's but-for causation, also known as actual causation, and proximate causation. And then you have damages, and you have to link the duty and the breach, the cause, to the ultimate damage. So that's kind of where you can look for but-for causation. Congress could have prohibited claims that were tainted by kickbacks or provided in violation of the AKS, 
but Congress used resulting from an unambiguously causal standard according to Tuesday's decision. I think we'll see a lot of play in that, and that's something that's not in front of the Supreme Court yet, but if I were a betting person, that might be one that we may see over the next few years. Now, the cybersecurity and healthcare IT. HIPAA, False Claims Act cases, as I mentioned from the outset, my co-counsel and I were fortunate to represent the whistleblower who brought the first case under the DOJ's civil cyber fraud initiative. So I actually, here it is, have some experience in this area of the law, and I'm going to focus on the allegations because the settlement language in the DOJ's press release specifically typically uses allegations unless a case goes all the way through trial and here or there's language in a settlement that the defendant admits to the conduct but normally it's just based on allegations and that's what it was here and in the interest of promoting civility the defense counsel were outstanding and it was really just a very collegial uh, exchange both with the DOJ and defense counsel in this case. So I would commend all parties on this. CHS allegedly falsely represented compliance with contract requirements relating to providing medical services at Air Force facilities in Iraq and Afghanistan. And even though there were requirements both in the RFP, the contract itself, and then on the claims that were submitted for payment, CHS allegedly failed to disclose to the State Department that it had not consistently stored pain, uh, patients' medical records on a secure EHR system. It also allegedly provided non-FDA-approved controlled substances at the facilities. And that one was actually an interesting prong to delve into. The alleged conduct on that prong basically was that instead of use a lot, utilizing FDA-approved or EU-approved pain medications or controlled substances, the medical director at CHS used his medical license, went through a compounding pharmacy in South Africa, and then shipped those drugs into the green zone. <coughs> Excuse me. And so that's how that case came about. Criminal enforcement actions involving illicit taking and stealing of protected information, this is a hot topic. And one that I'm just going to give you the highlights of because I really want to get into some of our other uh, cases, which are newer, both by the DOJ, a recent class action suit, and a couple of Federal Trade Commission cases. So the takeaway from the Southern District of Iowa was a HIPAA violation. The man was sentenced to 27 months, and basically what the individual did was obtained a victim's mental health conditions and medications and disclosed it to a third party. Yeah, you can't do that. That's the, the main takeaway from there. Here, District of Massachusetts, violating HIPAA for commercial gain, this is a no-no, and this case basically mirrors something similar to what we saw in the False Claims Act case involving Warner Chilcott. So basically, one does not want to take 
view, utilize protected health information in any form for commercial gain or remuneration. And we have seen cases, including Warner Chilcott, where the anti-kickback statute was intimately intertwined with the HIPAA violation. Middle District of Florida, again, you have an insider here who was a medical biller and furnished credentialing and medical billing services to its medical provider, where he had access to the company's financial medical provider and patient information. So here the perpetrator abused his role, wrongfully accessed the patient information and used the physician's name and ID number to submit false and fraudulent claims. In turn, he gained personally from it. EDTX has a lot of experience in this area, and they were named in a federal indictment on September 11th, 2019, charging them with conspiracy to obtain information from a protected computer and conspiracy to unlawfully possess and use a means of identification. Here, there was an alleged breach of the provider's EHR, and then basically the information was stolen, repackaged, and used to submit false and fraudulent claims in the form of DME items. The defendants reaped over 1.4 million in proceeds from the sale, and as a result, they are being sentenced to 48 months in federal prison. So. That was a sentencing that occurred July 8th of 2021. So they're about a year and a half through their sentence. And according to a criminal uh, lawyer friend of mine, who's a former criminal prosecutor, he said 48 months is a pretty good whack to be handed. So uh, Northern District of Georgia, again, the key takeaway is this was perpetrated by an insider and the indictment alleged that the cyber attack was conducted in part for financial gain. SDCA, this is a great case that you've heard me uh, highlight before, just because it includes a little bit of everything. It's kind of like the old school Bassomatic uh, commercial from Saturday Night Live, it slices, it dices, etc. But in all seriousness, not only was there a person working at a hospital who stole information, he then took that, gave it to his co-conspirators and used it per, to perpetrate fraud under the pandemic unemployment insurance benefits. Moreover, when a raid was conducted, they also found conspiracy to distribute MDMA and LSD, as well as possessing other items one should not possess, including methamphetamine, cocaine, and heroin with intent to distribute. I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I hear that's frowned upon. So I mentioned that HIPAA violations combined with anti-kickback allegations or violations. This is where you really want to hone in on that Warner Chilcott case and the related indictment of not only a physician, but also the regional manager and some sales reps as well. So some hot pocket items here, EHR records will continue to be an area of interest, not only for the Meaningful Use Program, or as I call it, the program formerly known as Meaningful Use because it's now the Interoperability Program, but there's oftentimes a component, and for those of you who have really delved into the, we'll call them new, 
stark exceptions and anti-kickback safe harbors, which were released in December of 2020 and became effective for most of the sections on January 19th of 2021, there are specific areas that relate to providing free goods and services related to IT. So certain things can be done, certain things cannot be done, but the one thing that is for certain, there are very distinct differences between the new AKS safe harbors and the Stark Law safe harbors as they relate to value-based enterprises and some of the other items that I mentioned, including cybersecurity. So EHRs, the new focus that's been building for quite some time are EHR donation fraud, meaningful use certification fraud, EHR adoption kickbacks, and substantive EHR fraud. So here we have donation fraud. This was a $9.35 million settlement out of the Middle District of Tennessee. And then we have another one, the Morocco Life Sciences out of the Middle District of 20, uh, Tennessee. That was in 2019. That was a $63.5 million FCA settlement. So again, these are not small. But here, basically, this particular physician in our lab allegedly violated the AKS and Stark through EHR donations, ostensibly made under the EHR donation safe harbor and exception, but they actually weren't. And the new safe harbors and ex exceptions are even more stringent, so you absolutely want to make sure that you hone in on, on those things. So here we have eClinical Works and um, the Greenway Health Systems. And basically what we have here are two very significant cases. So here the developer concealed that its software did not comply with the certification requirements. And so that's why in these cases, the companies were held liable, but not the providers who relied on them because eClinical Works and Greenway submitted those certifications to the government to get on their approved EHR list. Meaningful use certification, the Lewis case is a, an important case because the relators alleged these items, but the court dismissed it pursuant to Rule 9b, indicating that the relators failed to plead fraud with particularity despite a 100 plus page and 300 plus paragraph complaint. I know the Relators Council on here, they're very good counsel and so perhaps it was in the 11th Circuit, I don't know, but there's really a um, an interesting lesson to be learned uh, from this case. And Athena Health, again, this allegedly invited prospects and customers to all expense paid sporting, entertainment, and recreational events. And that's where we would um, look to the anti-kickback statute or the star law uh, violations to find liability here. Conversion deals, lead generation, yeah, that's just something that you really want to keep a pulse on and be aware of. So what about substantive EHRs? Uh, here we have a 
features of EHRs that recommend certain treatments or contribute to revenue optimization efforts may be subject to particular scrutiny, especially if there's upcoding involved. And that's something that it could be significant or if something's automatically populated and there is a particular drug or device behind that request. So moving on and as we round out some items, the DeVito Holdings uh, Substantive EM EHR, again, this may have been the first FCA settlement to contain a direct allegation regarding EHR functionality. 4C is another example that's out of SDNY. Here it populated claims that had received no response from private insurers after 90 days with a denial. That's important. Practice fusions, another example, and that was $145 million settlement. We have VIB out of the Eastern District of Tennessee. This was a recently declined and then ultimately dismissed KETAM complaint. And then what we have here, Cisco Systems actually delves into the not meeting the requirements that were required of the government contract yet saying, oh yeah, we did that. And so that is where that comes into play. Coffee is actually a hospital that was held accountable for its own meaningful use violations. And as we go into some of the compliance tips here as well, I want to hone in on the Jelly Bean case. And the Jelly Bean case is the most recent settlement under the Department of Justice Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. And what makes that case interesting, and I actually delve into that in another upcoming webinar that Catherine and I are doing for first health care compliance, which integrates the Federal Trade Commission and uh, some other enforcement actions. But Jelly Bean occurred in Florida, and basically it was a software that was utilized by a Florida Medicaid program. And what they found was that the company was not updating the patches, its software was no longer viable, it had a lot of vulnerabilities, and as a result, there was a breach that occurred of a significant number of minor patients' information. And although the amount that they paid was significantly less than what our case was with CHS, it's still material because again, HIPAA was involved, just like in uh, the case that my co-counsel and I did. And also it represents an ongoing trend in areas that the DOJ is exploring in terms of potential liability and False Claims Act exposure. So DOJ credit is absolutely critical, especially if you're on the compliance and the defense side. And on February 22nd of 2023, the implementation of a new policy for corporate criminal enforcement that will govern how all U.S. attorneys' offices across the country determine whether a company has made a voluntary self-disclosure of wrongdoing and how the companies will be credited for making such disclosures. Now, you can't go try and get in through the back door, but you can't get in through the front door, and you have to make sure that you disclose in good faith and disclose the full extent of the fraud. Otherwise, 
it's not going to bode well for the defendant. The new policy, which is effective immediately, seeks to incentivize self-disclosures offering significant benefits. Another place we see self-disclosures is actually HHS-OIG, and they often, as we know, work in conjunction with the U.S. Attorney's Office, but it always is beneficial to self-disclose. And this builds on the voluntary self-disclosure policy announced February 22nd of 2023. So while the DOJ is concerned with all types of fraud, the HHS-OIG is healthcare fraud. So if you have healthcare fraud, you may want to look at HHS-OIG and the DOJ as well. The policy is an expansion of recent changes by the DOJ criminal divisions, corporate enforcement, and voluntary self-disclosure policy. Civil side has also had some updates over the last couple of years as well. So here, what I would recommend people doing is reviewing the new December 2nd, 2020 AKS safe harbors and Stark law exclusions related to cybersecurity initiatives. Ensure that annual audits and cybersecurity risk analyses are done. Have workforce members undergo annual training on fraud, waste, and abuse, as well as HIPAA cybersecurity. If involved in government procurement, ensure that training that is relevant to contracting and a particular industry is conducted annually. Update anti-retaliation policies and procedures to encourage good faith compliance concerns from being raised, then document and take appropriate corrective measures. Be truthful in all RFPs and claim submissions to the government. Feel free to self-disclose and work with the government proactively instead of doubling back once you receive a CID or other government love letter, as I call them. Review EHR systems for features that could be abused at work with developers to adopt sound compliance. You want to make sure that your training and policies and procedures are up to date and that you are continually trying to cultivate a culture of compliance and not retaliate against whistleblowers who in good faith bring genuine concerns to a company's attention. So with that, Catherine, I want to thank the audience for their time and attention here today and turn it back to you for any questions. Thank you so much, Rachel. I really appreciate that. That was a wonderful presentation. One of the questions is, what is the significance of the super value case? The significance of the super value case is that, A, we have a lot of entities on both sides filing amicus briefs. Secondly, it deals with a an interesting area in terms of ambiguity and what is subjective versus objective and what to do whenever there is a situation where the guidance or the regulations are not specific enough and the defendants were not, quote, warned away from the conduct by authoritative guidance. And so with that, I think there is a particular emphasis on the CENTER requirement. And there was, 
uniformity between the government, the Relators Council, and the Defense Council in situations where there is a clear path with the law, the regulations, or the rules, or the guidance, or you can get there by congressional intent. I would mention reading the statutes or laws that are similar in pari materia in order to glean the meeting. And I don't think that that is something that can be overlooked by any party. Great. Defense counsel, they often argue that just because a government declines to intervene in a case, does that mean that a case lacks merit? No, and unfortunately that is something that is common in a lot of defense counsel's motions to dismiss. And the reality is there are some declined cases that are better than others. But having said that, the government only intervenes in 20% of all cases. And given the typical bar, and I mean the typical bar being Relators Council like myself, like the colleagues that I partner with who have a lot of experience in this area, the government will say we're declining and it could be for a le legitimate reasons. Like we have a lot of cases, you know what you're doing, go forth and conquer, you have our support, right? And so we go forth and conquer and I've had very successful outcomes on that as have many of my colleagues and in the presentation i led with that 900 million dollar biogen settlement clearly that was a case that had merit and typically i don't use that word clearly but it was the largest recovery in a non-intervened case in the history of the false claims act and that stems back to 1863 so that is a pretty profound statement that declined cases often can and do have merit. In fact, the Escobar case, which all of us rely on now as precedent from the Supreme Court for the ability to bring in implied false claims was a declined case. Right. And that's it. You have to be prudent. And as is said in the law, and I know Catherine, just your experience in the healthcare sector, you appreciate this. Bad cases make bad law, right? <laughs> and so there are some cases that should never be brought or move forward. There are other cases where it may be prudent to move forward, but not prudent to appeal. And that's where having the right counsel and not counsel who just see it from the egotistical standpoint instead of how is this case going to impact case law all over the country, impact clients in the future? And that's really the vantage point. And since I clerked for an appellate judge, that's something that is always on the forefront of my mind whenever I am involved in a false claims act case. How is this going to potentially come up on appeal? And then what are the potential issues that could be presented, what's the case on the circuit, and how is this going to impact cases all over? Right. Did you have any other words of advice that you'd like to leave with us today? Only that from the compliance side, compliance is becoming more and more critical, and 
it's really a good way based upon what was presented here today to combine fraud, waste and abuse training and HIPAA training with the fundamental goal of cultivating a culture of compliance. And by doing that, that gives the defendants or the company more leverage potentially so long as the compliance program is done in good faith and put substance over forms. So you don't just want a piece of paper, but in practice, the procedures are not being followed or you have people who bring legitimate concerns to an entity's attention and they retaliate against them, they blackball them, a lot of bad things can happen. And yet they have this great policy that says we don't retaliate. So there's just a lot to consider along those lines. And I would just recommend that if you are considering bringing a False Claims Act case on the flip side, that you do seek out season counsel to do so. Wonderful. I wanted to thank you so much for being here today so much. Thank you, Catherine. And I wanted to remind our attendees to please use the contact information for Rachel to for any questions. If you have any questions later on, you can contact me and I'll forward it on to Rachel and send us any questions. Remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you within two days following the broadcast. You don't need to request it. You'll get it automatically. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.